Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Weld.com podcast. I'm Bo Wigington. In this week's episode, Austin's back as my co-host as we talk to Rich Quinn, an automotive engineer who just took first place at Scrapfest with his sculpture, the Scrapacaster. We talk about the event and what went into designing and creating the sculpture. We talk about the disconnect and communication between welders and engineers, and Rich talks about how engineers keep their skills sharp with automotive performance hobbies and robotics. We dive in right after a word from our sponsors. When it comes to welding, most people think the danger lies in the fire and electricity. But what you learn fast when you strike up and get a whiff of fumes is how terrible those can make you feel, especially after a long day of work. Welding creates fumes that can be hazardous and you need them out of the way. Luckily, Donaldson has come up with some cool stuff to help welders. They make fume extraction equipment for major fabricators, smaller shops, and everything in between. They've been around for more than a hundred years, so they know what they're doing. Weld fumes are no joke, so learn how to protect yourself. Head over to Donaldson.com to check out their stuff. You'll be glad you did. Are you tired of carrying multiple pieces of equipment on your service truck? Lincoln Electric has introduced the solution, the Ranger Air 260 MPX. This multi-function engine drive combines an air compressor, generator, battery charger, battery jump starter, and multi-process welder in one compact device, specifically designed for the unpredictable circumstances and job demands of the work truck industry. But that's not all. The Ranger Air 260 MPX is also designed to provide a lower cost of ownership with features such as auto stop-start technology and an electronic throttle body engine with variable engine speed. Don't miss out on this versatile and reliable machine that can handle any demanding job site. Visit www.lincolnelectric.com for more information on the Ranger Air 260 MPX available later this year and save space on your truck for other tools and gear with this compact power horse. Alrighty, do you want to introduce yourself to the audience just in case they're not familiar with you and your work? Sure thing. Uh, my name's Rich. I'm an automotive engineer in the Detroit area. Work for one of the big three, doing cooling and thermal systems. And on the side, I, I like to do a little bit of artwork. And sometimes, more recently, it's been art made with scrap metal. The whole reason I met you was up at Scrap Fest. You ended up taking first place in the whole competition, and I think it was well-deserved. Thank you so much for that. It was absolutely a shock and a surprise, and I'm blown away by it. But yeah, Scrap Fest was uh, kind of a life changer for me. It was an amazing, incredible event. So what were the dimensions of this thing? Because it just seemed larger than life. Well, that's kind of how, how I started the design was, all right, I'll, I, I bet bigger is better. How big can it be? And the criteria for Scrap Fest is you can make something out of 500 pounds of scrap metal 
and it can be no taller than 10 feet, no wider than six feet. So six feet wide, 10 feet tall. I gave myself a little bit of wiggle room in the end and the guitar in the end is uh, total mounted on its stand. It's nine foot four. So it's How much does that sucker weigh? It weighs, I'm guessing probably three to 400 pounds, probably in the neighborhood of 400 pounds with the base and everything that's there. But the metals it's made of, it's everything you can find at a scrapyard. It's a mix of, you name it, there's aluminum sheet, galvanized pipe, uh, a little bit of copper brass here and there, mostly mild steel and aluminum sheet with some internal structure that's typically mild steel pipe, that sort of thing. Fair amount of stainless floating around there too. Just a smorgasbord. And a lot of rivets. Y yeah, you Yeah, bet. you got to have yeah. the rivets to get everything locked in. Otherwise, welding aluminum to steel, it's just, it just doesn't work too well. It's tricky. Yeah, that's just it. I was going to ask you, what's the setting for quarter inch stainless to 22 gauge aluminum? It's hot. That's it. It's just <laughs> yeah. hot. Crank it up. Yeah, it's a rivet gun and yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, pretty that, much. That's the right setting. A rivet gun for sure. Yep. As an engineer, you blew my mind when you're like, yeah, I'm not a welder and I don't even play guitar, but I'm an engineer. And like your engineering background, how did that play into your design? Yeah. The engineering part is I have spent a lot of years essentially looking at design and rotating things in three dimensions and being able to use CAD and sketches and understanding dimensions of things. And I use that to visualize what I thought I was going to make. And I took it a step further and I, I started with sketches and put it into a CAD drawing, laid it out in 3D. And once you have something in 3D and CAD, you can rotate it around and see it from all angles. And with sculpture, that's the one thing I've, I've learned is no two-dimensional picture will ever do justice to a sculpture. You walk up to these things in person, they just don't look anything like what you've seen in a 2D picture. You really have to rotate it around and see it from all angles and be able to walk around it. And in terms of this design, that's, I wanted to be able to do that kind of virtually. And so I did a bunch of iterations of what I thought I might like to have. And I tweaked it in CAD and I shaped it and I got the proportions where I thought I wanted. Essentially had an idea of what to put together if I could get the materials to put it together like that. You know, that's actually really funny yeah. to me from a welding standpoint. And I've built a couple smaller sculptures, nothing to this extent. It's just a, I'm staring here on my computer screen, just in awe of it. How much planning went into it? Like for me, it's just, I'll draw a, a half-ass sketch on a table out of chalk. And then like, all right, there it is. And then I just build it as I go. How much planning went into it and did it all work out to the plan that you wanted? Two questions there. I, number one, I did a ton of planning, yes. And number two, it did not turn out in the way I envisioned it originally, but that was okay. It turned out better just by complete luck. But I did a ton because I'd had a bunch of different ideas and I really hadn't settled on what I was going to do initially. But once I saw a, a sketch of what this might look in 3D, I was pretty locked in. I fell in love with the idea and I just, I couldn't let it go. And once I was locked into the idea, to be honest, I was really worried I wouldn't get the right materials or enough materials to build it, not knowing what you get at any given day at the, at the scrapyard. And, and so then I started the other part of the planning is, okay, I'm going to have a, an escape hatch. What else will I make if I don't get enough material to make this thing? With all this planning that went into this, 
when you showed up for collection day, what was that like? Because I've heard, I, I wasn't there on collection day, but I hear everyone's just like, it's a mad dash to try to get all the materials you need. Did you have like ideas of the type of materials or shapes that you wanted to get? Or was it just, I'll be happy with whatever I can find that maybe I can make this out of? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So I, I definitely couldn't go in with the, let me see what I find and then I'll make something out of it. So yeah. instead, my daughter was my partner. She was my shopping partner and she was awesome. She said, all right, just let me know what we're after and, and we'll divide and conquer at the, uh, at the yard. But the engineering part of this is I went in with more or less a bill of materials, a list of exactly what I need in order to be able to execute this design. And if you're going to make a design, and it, in my case, I guess I'll just describe it. So it's a guitar, it's a Fender Stratocaster, it's two and a half times natural scale. And I wanted some sculptural elements behind it. And in order to make all that stuff, I needed some structure to back it up, basically a wire frame or a skeleton of some kind to create that shape. And then I needed a bunch of sheet metal material to paste over that skeleton. We went in with, all right, we need a couple hundred feet of rebar. And of course, there was no rebar to be found. So what did you use uh, in place of that? I had a mix of a bunch of things. So I, I ended up using, there was a lot of stainless rod in some places. The luckiest find I had was a bunch of all thread some six foot lengths of all thread. I found I think six or seven pieces of that. And that's, that kind of serves the same purpose. You want something that you bend in a sort of an organic shape, get the curves that you want that sort of fit a guitar profile. Or in this case, I used with the all thread, I used that for the sculptural flame looking elements that, uh, I love those. That's um, like my, I think that's my favorite. It's just that background, that little whipping like fire flowy feel behind the guitar. It just really, I think it brings it home, man. Thank you yeah. so much. That was, I, I figured like when I was designing the guitar itself is a shape. Like if I do a good job of it, it's going to be good enough. People are going to like it, but it's not my design. It's not my art. And those sculptural elements at the back, I mm -hmm. wanted to cut loose and, and do what something. What are those made out of? So those are sheet metal, basically mild steel. There was a shelving unit. I think I had four or five steel shelves of 20 gauge steel. It was all painted. Yeah, I was about to ask, I is didn't it patina? Because it's not steel <laughs> color. It's, it looks almost copper. So those are an intentional patina. So I used a, a can of aircraft remover to take the, the paint and or powder. You better open a door with that stuff. So I, well, Yeah, that was an outdoors. Thankfully, I work in the backyard a fair amount. So waited for a nice, a nice day where I could stand up wind. But it's incredible what the aircraft remover will take off the steel or any, any kind of sheet metal. So that got it down to bare metal. So I had mild steel sheet and cut and welded that with the help of my daughter again. She was, she was my fabrication aide. She did some spot welding too, or tack welding. And basically we created the shapes using all thread, created that skeleton in the form that we wanted, and then did a whole bunch of cutting and, and tacking in of those sheets. And then to get that final finish that you're looking at, that rusted look, that's a chemical patina. So that's muriatic acid and hydrogen peroxide does that. It turns that color in about uh, 20 minutes or yeah, so. Yeah, that's, that's some good stuff right there. I usually just stick it outside and pee on it. <laughs> I like the vinegar and hydrogen peroxide and salt. 
That's yeah, I'm with you there. Salt and vinegar smells better too. So yeah, that's probably <laughs> yeah. my next one. <laughs> I, I think it's really cool, man, because I'm, again, just staring at the the project. It looks planned compared to what I saw from Scrapfest and hearing some of the stories of, like you said, it was a mad dash, get whatever you can find, put it together, and we'll figure it out as we go. You could tell that this was planned. When you say something didn't go as planned, what did you think was the hardest part of the sculpture build that just frustrated you the most to get it to look right? Good question. I think I was happy with the spires all along. The guitar itself, I think I really struggled figuring out how to structurally connect the neck to the body in a way that would still look good. I essentially built the whole body with the help of, by the way, my my wife and my two daughters were also a big part of this. They helped with the aesthetics and deciding what colors and which of the materials to use when we're laying out the body. But once we had that sort of together, really the the junction of the neck and the body was a tough nut to crack. What did you end up doing to get it to stick? So the whole thing could stand up. Yeah. So internally, if you were to take the guitar apart, if you pulled the face of the body off, you'd see a whole bunch of really questionable welds. Not so much in quality, but in design, because I had materials I was using, like the structure of the neck is a part of that same shelving unit. It's one of these rivet head steel shelves, a nice heavy gauge steel, and it's good heavy stuff, powder coated to the moon. And I was attaching that to, I have an internal pipe that's a really heavy stainless tubing it, it made of some kind of a, like a handrail you'd use to get out of a swimming pool. So all of these things are junk found at the yard. Definitely never meant to be welded together all that well, but <laughs> managed to patch it together in a way I was pretty confident it was never coming apart. Yeah, that was the biggest struggle. It looked like Fender himself put it together, so that's really sweet. Now, as far as the body, I'm seeing like license <laughs> plates you. and like little vents. Was that off like some sort of, I don't know, automotive piece that you found? Or Yeah, in the scrapyard, we went through just about everything. It's actually, one of the things that's difficult to find is good, flat, mild steel. Typically, like when you get, once something gets to a scrapyard, if it's made of mild steel, it's crumpled up in a ball. License plates, they, I don't know, people just bring whatever is metal that, that's sitting in a garage and they throw it in the back of their truck and they haul it to the scrapyard. So you'll find just a little bit of everything, you name it. But aluminum sheet was pretty easy to come by, but the license plates, yeah, they were just in a pile, just a whole bunch of them in a pile in the, the aluminum sorting section. And yeah, other stuff that was there. It meant the attention to detail, man, is just, it's on point. I love the the very top of it. What did you do to get, did you do some sort of etching to get the fender in there? And it says, if y'all aren't being able to see, it says scrap a caster across the top instead of Stratocaster. Yeah. Man, that's a, that's something that just that's makes me happy. Mind. How did you get those letters to look so <laughs> almost like it was manufactured that way? Oh, I used a very technical tool. It's a CNC vinyl cutter. Your wife might know it as a cricket. Oh, my, mine's got oh, one. Mine wants one. No, they're awesome. So I, one of my other hobbies prior to this is doing paint and graphics on motorcycles. And so I've used the cricket to do a lot of vinyl graphics in the past. Works really good. That's is awesome. that vinyl itself or is well, it like etched on there? Yeah, no, it's actually, that's just vinyl. It look and like then, a sticker. Uh, a it, looks, it looks like it's part of it. One with the metal. Put a fair amount of clear coat over top. <laughs> of it. That'll do it. Yeah, so I was about to say. Yeah. yeah but a yeah. little poly shell you on get it. A nice, generous coat. Just about what I do on any project. I love the the finish of metals without having to paint them. So it's just more than any paint yeah. that I own. It's just clear coat. And it's just double fist and clear coat. 
<laughs> yeah, I love that too. I love the look. I love to see the bare metal. You know, if there's some grinding marks, mm. more the merrier. Mm. Mm. like that too. Oh, yeah. This thing, it has to live outside, which hadn't really designed it to be an outdoorsy thing. I always thought, oh, this will live inside somebody's brewery or inside a bar that plays music or something like that. But yeah. in the end, it's going to live outdoors. So it, it gets a couple extra coats of uh, clear on everything. But the fact that it's so many dissimilar metals, dissimilar metals is what creates a battery, which causes corrosion and, and etching and all that kind of thing. So like over time, something like this, that's made out of so many different things, it lives outdoors. It's going to rust. Right. It'll get some corrosion well, even here if, and there. That's all right. Even if you have a bunch of stainless on there, if it's sitting right next to the carbon, the carbon's going to run onto it and you're going to get some sort of cross-contamination with just about anything if you have them sitting next to one another even after the clear coat, because you can't get the clear coat and all the cracks underneath it where everything's at. So weathering, it would definitely yeah, totally. be a problem there, but uh, sweet stuff. Yeah. You're, the pieces in the back that are already rusty, that's just what you got to do. You got to lean into it. All right, yeah. let's rust it. <laughs> lean into that rust. Yeah. Shifting gears here, like back to the engineering side, just because I, that was the biggest surprise to me when we talked afterwards, like everybody's packing up their stuff and you're just like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not a welder. Don't judge my welds. And you're like, and I'm not a musician. I'm an engineer. In the welding world, there's this big back and forth between engineers and welders. And I would just like to hear your side, like the engineer's perspective when you're trying to spec out things. It's like, what goes through your mind when you're thinking of the ways you're planning of like parts. Or, yeah. Do or you guys ever think of the welder or the mechanic or the electrician? Do you ever think of us? I don't think you do. We think about it all the time. I swear. I, we honestly do. So in the auto industry, you know, serviceability, of course, is a big challenge. A lot of engineers, by the way, the ones that you'd want to work with do a lot of this stuff on their own, right? They, they do welding and mechanical work. And so they understand the struggle. We also work really closely with technicians, like really talented people who take cars apart, put them back together, fabricate instrumentation, do a lot of fundamental welding specifically so that we can get tests done. And we all have tons of respect for these people that we work with and understand the struggle that they go through. One of the biggest challenges when it comes to designing something is that serviceability is probably a little further down the list than a lot of other things, like essentially making whatever it is you're designing function really well. You have to keep in mind that it needs to be taken apart and serviced and put back together. But, and I'll tell you, it's absolutely a challenge. You've looked under hood in anything nowadays, and there's not room to uh, reach an arm in to turn a socket, much less get in there and get parts out. And that's really driven by a, a lot of the designs themselves. Things are getting more complicated for a number of reasons, but there's a lot more features in your truck today than there was 20 years ago. And it's those features yeah. that if you want to have them, guess what? It takes up a lot of space. Yeah. And that's a funny thing you were saying is you think of the people that are going to be servicing and putting these things together. And I, that's where me being newer to the industry and newer to the welding world, that's where I see a lot of problems in the industry is just communication. It's, it's not a back and forth communication. Like when you're designing something to be built, are you talking to these people? Are you talking to the mechanics and people being like, hey, if we made something like this, would this be beneficial to you or would it be non-beneficial? 
Yeah, for sure. So like in the auto industry, like what I work on is future products. So things that might be coming out in the fall or things that might be coming out two or three years from now. And yeah, when we work with mechanics, technicians in our engineering labs on these vehicles, a lot of times the techs will be the first person to turn the wrench on a specific problem. They'll say, hey, this was really hard to take apart because of that. And by the way, I have some ideas of how it might be better. And that's the kind of thing a good engineer spends the time listening to those techs and feeding that back and trying to alter the design as best they can. It, it might seem like we're not listening, but if an engineer is not listening to a mechanic or to a technician or to a welder, it's generally because there's some kind of heavy uh, cost or design constraint they just can't get around. There's been times I work in pressure vessels where reading the print and following the steps and everything, and then just having to call someone over and be like, hey, this don't fit. This doesn't go, this doesn't go where it says it's supposed to go. So how do you, when that gets to your plate, how do you, you've got this part, this is already on the floor. It's trying to be put together. How do you compensate? Like the design's already been done, but now we're finding out that we can't get it put in. So how do you compensate for that sort of stuff? Yeah, that, that kind of thing, you need to be able to react to it fast. And like I said, a good engineer listens early. They try to catch that the first time out, not, not wait until something's already deep into production. You try to catch things when they're still prototype or an idea on paper. One of the other things we do a lot of in, in my end of work is peer review. And it's basically a bunch of engineers in a room with their designs. You review the designs together. And one of the, one of the things you try to do is you poke holes in somebody else's idea. You say, Hey, what about that over there? I don't, I don't think that you really got that right. And, and people actually enjoy that challenge of uh, trying to make sure that before something is launched into hard parts, it's been studied as well as you can study it on paper, on the tube and 3D CAD. I reckon you guys should add a couple welders or mechanics to that study group. Just some rowdy bunches, just to fly, just to flare it up a <laughs> yeah, bit. Yeah, just to draw them out. Just if make those else, meetings just, take twice as long. <laughs> yeah. Get a little more colorful language in there too. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Another thing that I think comes into this kind of battle is that it's not only you're trying to make the best design possible, but you're also trying to make the most cost effective for the employer. And that's, I think, how much does that play into your like day to day? Like when you're trying to make something and you're like, are you put under these constraints of it can't go over X amount of dollars in materials? Yes or no. I mean, pretty much every business exists on trying to make a profit. So cost is always something you got to measure. But at the same time, you're not going to deliver a product that's substandard that people won't come back for the next time. It's there, but good engineers understand that you got to spend what you got to spend to make it right. You keep saying good engineers. In your opinion, (laughs) being an engineer, what makes someone a good engineer? Yeah. Yeah, that makes him a bad engineer. (laughs) Yeah, that might be actually better. What are the kind of like negative quality that everybody talks about? Like that I would consider a bad engineer. It's like, what makes someone a bad engineer in your mind? Oh, that's a good one. So I think you're a bad engineer if you can't listen, whether it's listening to your peers or listening to the people who look at your product, look at your designs. Yeah, if you're not open to being shown a better way, then you're not a good engineer. Oh, that goes with welding. There's old school guys out there. Then, and like you say, things are changing. Machines are changing. Process and procedures are all changing. 
And if you're not willing to keep an open mind and change with them, then you're a bad welder. If there's a younger guy who notices something that you may be doing wrong and they confront you and in the right words, right? You've got to be receptive of it. Take it with a grain of salt and maybe they might be right, you know? And I think that's what, yeah. no matter what part of the industry, whether you're hands-on or you're in the engineer or whatever it may be, it's all just communication through each level. Yeah. And it's really hard to do once you've gotten to be really good at what you do, especially welders, right? You, I'm, I'm the best guy out here. So that's, that's a little hard sometimes. Here's an interesting question that just popped into my mind. So as a welder, you got to constantly practice to keep your hands and skills like to where they are. As an engineer, like how do you keep improving your skills and keep your engineering skills. I don't know. I, that's Yeah, that's welders have to brush to up. It, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? So how does an engineer stay on top of his game? Yeah, that's funny. In the auto industry, it's typically the people who are top of their game. They're out racing cars or motorcycles. So that's probably a big one. A lot of motorsport amongst engineers. That's a pretty good way to keep yourself tuned up on, on how to do things really well. What, how does that help? I mean, just because you got a better, since you have a funner lifestyle, you're not going home watching, you know, Gilmore goals every night. You're actually going race, race cars. Yeah. I mean, I'd want to be better at what I do too, if I get the opportunity, but uh, I guess just a, a, a better, you, you're evolving with your hobby. So it in tune, in turn kind of works together with your job. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you've got something in your hobby that corresponds with what you do at work, whether it's engine or chassis development or something along those lines, basically motorsport and race cars. You, most of the engineers I work with who do that kind of stuff on the outside, they're essentially designing, fabricating, making their own pop-up parts, let's say anything to make it go faster. And when you're trying to make it go faster, you are working at the 99th percentile of performance as much as you can. So yeah, you're making yourself better at the same time as you're making your motorcycle or so car rich, or boat, no. whatever. Don't, don't get me wrong here. <laughs> you're saying it to, to stay on top of your game. You got to stay on, in kind of your genre. So are you saying you're not on top of your game? You're in a whole different area over here with this art stuff. You're not even a musician. You're building guitars out of scrap metal and you're an automotive engineer. Why did, how, and why did you get into art? It's a great point. I've just let myself go, I guess. <laughs> I'm just slipping. Just the slipping. funny thing is, I think growing up, they used to teach the left half of your brain. Maybe they still teach you this way. I don't know. But the left half of your brain is all this logical and structural thought, this straightforward, everything has a purpose. And then the right half of your brain is this crazy artistic, paint everything a different color. And I don't know, I just want to use my whole brain. I've always had some kind of artistic outlet and I've always wanted to do a little something with the right half of my brain. And that's where this is. This is a great artistic outlet. Rich, I think you and I are one and the same there on that sense, you know, as a welding inspector and, and thinking that metallurgy is just really fascinating. I've always wanted to dive into it and understand metal more. Uh, and then as far as the welding goes, being really on top of my game is being a skilled craftsman, but the art lets you cut loose. It lets you escape that whole structure and just be, just have freedom. Yeah, that's the best part of it. So like, in doing this sculpture in particular, I'm doing a Stratocaster, which has a very specific shape and the dimensions, you could make it exactly the right dimensions down to the 10th of a millimeter. And if you wanted to, in doing this in an artistic way, I was like, all right, I'm going to get it close. There's a part of it. If I don't like the proportions in, in this particular element of the guitar, I'm going to move it. You know why? Because I don't have to measure anything if I don't want to. If I like this curve a little bit better here, I'm going to make it that way. 
Or if you um, don't want to yeah, fix it, just you call it a happy little accident. Yeah. <laughs> Love me some Bob Ross. <laughs> yeah, for yeah, sure. That, you had that guitar looked, I mean, from someone that has played Fender guitars for 20 plus years, that's like my main brand. I, I dabble in Gibson and all these that's other so ones, cool. but like, like <laughs> it, it blew me away. I just could not believe that you were not a musician. <laughs> So there's a couple of things that are not perfectly accurate, and this is the right brain taking over. The base of a Fender Strat, if you look at the body of it, has a waist and then it has shoulders. And mm. the waist, the way I've got it mounted, it's it stands almost vertical. It's tilted like 15 degrees off of vertical, and it's tilted back about 15 degrees. Well, like when 17 it's tilted, and a half. Yeah, you spotted that. <laughs> I saw your laser. But when it was tilted back with, and I laid out the profile of the original classic Fender Strat dimensions, I was like, it just looks too, too hippie. Like the base was too wide. It just didn't look right to me. And I was like, well, you know what? I don't care. I can fix that. So I took about two and a half inches out of the width of the base of it. And to me, it's tilted back. It's the proportions look more correct uh, than it would have if it was actual a duplicate. Now from the untrained eye, this is a perfect project, right? This this is just amazing to look at. It's satisfying in every way, shape, and form. But to someone who actually put it together, what don't you like about your sculpture? What what do you see? What do you see as flaw in something that to others would be perfect? Oh, that's funny. Yeah, all I can see is the flaws and stuff that I made. Right. Yeah, the the perimeter. So actually, the perimeter of the body, since I didn't have enough rebar or rod to do the perimeter to make a skeleton for it, instead I do took some of that flat sheet metal, folded it over with a brake, and I used a shrinker stretcher to make the curves. So that whole... Hold on, hold uh, on, hold on. The, a shrinker stretcher. Oh, yeah, yeah. you know what familiar? <laughs> that sounds like something you go run and tell the apprentice to grab, and it's a made-up tool. What the freaking shrinker stretcher? <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Believe it or not, it's one of my favorite metalworking tools. You can... Let's see, I don't know if I can describe it. Oh, well no, enough. I'm giving it a um, Google right now. So you can even go pick up a hardwood freight shrinker stretcher for, I don't know, 150 bucks or something like that. If you take, let's say a piece of angle iron, but instead it's just sheet metal. So it's really thin metal. And if you take one of the flanges of that piece of sheet metal and you squish it together in a localized oh, spot, let's say you take, uh, it shrinks one side and stretches two pairs the other. Of rice grips. Yeah, you, there's two separate tools. In one case, you shrink them together so that like when you compress that little top section of the flange, the whole body takes on this curve and you can make these really cool organic shapes with it. It's, it's a really fun tool to play with. So you can shrink it to make a decreasing curve or you can stretch it to make a, an increasing curve. Speaking of tools, when we think of like welding tools, everyone goes right to the machine or like a grinder. What were other metalworking tools that you use to achieve all these different shapes that you have? Yeah, a lot of different stuff because a lot of this was much more fabrication than welding and a lot of it was sheet metal. So I use a Beverly shear to cut all of the profiles of everything. You don't have to Google that, do you, Austin? No, sir. I can shear stuff. I'm a shear <laughs> okay, guy. Okay, all right. Right on. <laughs> so the Beverly shear is just like a giant tin snip that you can cut a curve in a big piece of sheet metal. And so that's, that created a lot of the shapes that I needed. In fact, large majority of everything on that was cut, at least touched a couple of times by the Beverly shear. And then to get like any of the rods and everything bent in shape, I have just a lot of homemade benders. So like a couple of pins welded together, a couple inches apart, 
You can take a piece of rod and hold those pins in a vise or bolt it to the bench. Didn't have and to use I any I do a heat. lot of bending that way. No, I think almost everything there is cold bent. Yeah. Anything up to, I don't know, three-eighths of an inch or bigger, mild steel. I don't know. If you got enough leverage, you can bend it to oh, a shape you like. I don't know. I'm a little guy. I, I immediately bring out the rosebud torch and get everything cherry red and use my <laughs> pinky to bend it. <laughs> nice. I just use a hammer. Just use, just hammer it out. Oh, that's a, that's a rough day. Yeah. Yeah. It's not fun. So that's those why shears, I do man, that. that'll give you a forearm workout like a son of a gun. I mean, especially because you're not using any hot working processes. So shearing all the metal, even thin gauge stuff, man, it, if it's a hand shear, that's, that's rough. Yeah. It was a good workout for about a month. It was do you, a lot of uh, Yeah. My forearms were pumped at the time. Do not you anymore. swap or you got a Popeye on the right side and you're a stick on the other? Popeye <laughs> yeah. on the right. Yeah. As far as, so this has been super great just hearing about the creation of this and then your engineering background but like every single time on the podcast i try to leave people with a little bit of advice considering you're in the engineering field like if somebody was a welder but they wanted to learn more about engineering or maybe become an engineer mm -hmm. like what would be your advice for people to get into it what kind of advice would you give someone that is interested in becoming an engineer yeah, I've got a good one for this. If you have any interest or if you've heard of FIRST Robotics, actually, have either of you guys heard of FIRST Robotics, yes, FRC? Right. I could do a whole podcast on it, but I won't. But I spent seven or eight years worth of, of my time prior to getting into this art stuff. That was my pretty sole obsession. FIRST Robotics, it's a high school robot competition and basically handful of mentors and coaches who are engineers in some kind of industry will gather a bunch of high school kids who are interested in robotics. And you build a machine that's, I don't know, somewhere between 100 and 130 pounds made of uh, a lot of aluminum, a little bit of steel, a lot of electric motors, a lot of gears. And essentially you're building a robot that's made to play a competitive game. And every year the game is something new. You might be picking up frisbees or throwing beach balls or hanging gears. Yeah, I actually think on that uh, one of my younger cousins is into that. I think he's working his way there. I'm, I'm waiting for him to kind of get a little bit deeper. I might give him my little plasma table so that he has something to play with. That's super cool. You guys, like, take a, I will find you an event near where you are. If you go and watch what high school kids are doing at this stuff, your minds will be blown. And it's not just engineering, like it's kids who are interested in mechanical things or software. It's meant to be a kind of a promoting STEM kind of program. So you can have kids that show up, they don't want to do anything but run the laptop that tells this thing what to do autonomously. You have some other kids that don't want to learn any of that part, but they want to take things apart and put them back together. Maybe put them back together even better if they can. And you have kids <laughs> yeah, that I can just always want to show take up it and apart. play the game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, but as far as like the, is this a training camp or is there like a classroom aspect of that or? So it's funny. It's an after school for most programs. It's an after school thing where, um, the kids just decide to meet two or three times a week, uh, maybe on the weekends, typically on the weekends, you get a lot done and you go someplace with a bunch of adults who know some kind of engineering and, and there's just this great creative collaboration of, hey, what do we want to build? And, and everyone goes nuts making something or making a bunch of things. You make prototypes, you test them, you break them, you find out what, what's a good idea, what's a bad idea. 
and you make them better. And then you get together in these competitions and the competitions are just mind blowing, really like just huge events in, in stadiums, basically with thousands of kids and quite a great production, really good stuff. Is it only for like high schools or is this, is there like college levels? Oh, they have college levels. That's like, when you get into Skills USA and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, no, I'm just saying like, right. if you're not a high school student, if it, like me being a 36 year old man, if I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I think I, I was like, he I need shows, to make a change in my life to He to shows engineer. up in like small little kid clothes and goes to high school, like uh, Billy Madison. He's like, can I come play? Yeah. So that it's funny. So let's say if, if there's a younger kid or a younger kid in your life, I think it starts all the way at like kindergarten and goes all the way up. They have different levels, but the high school is the pinnacle of it. Some of the kids graduate and they just couldn't get enough of it. And they'll carry something to college and maybe they'll have an FRC team at college, but it's not anywhere near as, as a structured after they graduate high school. But let's say you're somebody who's a few years out of high school and you still have this mechanical interest. Maybe you're a welder. You still want to do cool stuff. You can show up and mentor a team. If you just Google first robotics or FRC in your area, I guarantee there's a team not far from you that you've never heard of. And they're always looking for mentors. And a mentor doesn't have to be somebody who knows engineering. It's just somebody who's interested in helping kids know more than they know right now. So. If it's a welder, comes in with some fabrication skill or some experience in anything, man, you'll transfer it to a kid. It's nothing better. Now, I know there's like some stuff, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar, Rich, uh, makerspaces. Is there anything comparison to a makerspace, but for the engineering field? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I've never, I've not seen, not really seen anything along those lines. Yeah, it'd be really sweet to have something get developed where you just show up for a weekend and, and put together this robot to you know, do whatever you need it to do. I think that would be pretty sweet. Yeah, for sure. We might have just stumbled onto the next big thing, oh, you know. Rich homie Quinn's over there spaces. taking notes. He says he's about to start him a business. <laughs> no, you start. You you start it. I'll come partake on the weekends. <laughs> Sounds like a lot yeah. of work. Yeah. Hey, so this isn't your first rodeo when it comes to scrap art. Obviously, this thing is well done. I mean, how long have you been doing scrap metal art? I think on and off. Actually, it's not been very long. I've been picking up scrap art maybe in the last two or three years, probably about three years or so. Now, when you say um, you pick up scrap art, is it just something that mm -hmm. you have at a vision and then you just create, or are you actually finding customers looking for you to put these things together for them? Yeah, no, it's just, I, I just have an idea of something I'd like to make, not looking to sell any of this stuff. I just play around in my shop on the weekend. Actually, one of the biggest things that made me do it was heading to the scrapyard because I wanted to practice welding. I'd welded in college a handful of times, but lost that skill because I wasn't doing it forever. And yeah, when I just wanted something to stick together, is oh, let me just go hit the scrapyard and see what they have. And that kind of kicked off this whole process was, I was picking up things that looked cool. I'm like, oh, let me stick this to that. Look at that. Yeah, it kind of looks a car now. Yeah. yeah. And then you win first place at scrap. Yeah, this. speaking of, yeah. I'm, I'm staring at the website and it's, you got a big old bold letters that says sold. Now, if you don't mind me asking, yes, sir. how much does that sucker go for? You can be as vague as, or, as, or as honest as you like, but. Yeah, sure. It's on the website. I guess it's searchable. So I don't mind saying it's more than I would have guessed before ever starting any of this. But yeah, it went for $6,000. Excellent, man. That's awesome. Good for you. That's, That's awesome. Good stuff. I had $6,000 to give you for it. <laughs> you can outbid them. Bid the buyer yeah. if you want. Yeah. 6001 <laughs> now, did they set up like a bunch of buyers or did they like just, they just advertise that these folks are trying to, they're willing to sell their stuff. And my biggest question yes. I guess, for the scrap metal community is where do you find work? 
Oh, yeah. Good question. I, I would guess like outside of an event like this, I think people get their own websites or their own Instagrams going. And if you want to set up an Etsy page or something like that, you can't have your own commerce that way. One of the big attractions of doing Scrap Fest for me was that I knew there would be an auction and I'd actually never sold anything prior to this piece. Like everything I've made, I, I give away or it goes to friends and family or it sits around my house till my wife gets tired of looking at it. But so I thought it would be pretty cool to go to Scrap Fest where there's a built-in auction. And to answer your question, yeah, they set up an auction at the event. It's online beforehand, but you can walk around during the event and see something you like. You can scan a QR code and log in and you can bid on it. So Rich is telling us that we got to market ourselves, you got to network, and then you got to look for these auctions so that if you're a, a metal artist, that that'll be maybe your way in of finding some buyers. Yeah, absolutely. I saw you just posted a YouTube video about Scrap Fest, which was awesome. Love that. Thank and you. then I think I saw in the comments, are you going to officially announce here and now that you're going to compete in next year's Scrap Fest? Oh, I'm competing, man. I was hooked. I was like, I got to be in this Dude, next year. That's there's awesome. Nothing that, there's nothing that can stop me. I love that. My limited skills. This know? is the first time <laughs> hearing of this, Bo. You just Oh, made I was going to ask you to be on my team. <laughs> yeah, I'm raising my eyebrow here like, oh, you want a scrap metal? I'm down, dude. That sounds awesome. I don't know where we're going to build it, but. That's the thing is that you have, you have to collect it from there. Right. So it'd be a road trip. It was a 10 hour drive for me. And I was like, I'll do a 10 hour drive again. That's not. Yeah, I don't know how long that is to, to Houston, but that's a whole. Yeah. You wouldn't be the only team coming from Texas. Yeah, I saw it. They made, they made a really a really big sculpture. They put a lot of steel in it. They sure did. That's, They're that's, awesome too. Great people. That's what we really tried to capture in the video was the scrap art is very cool. And just the town is really cool. But the feeling of that festival was something that I hadn't felt in a long time where it was like everybody was just there to appreciate what other people are creating. Yeah. And like, yeah, that's. That's the thing out of the whole festival. I was like, that's why I don't even care if I make a really great sculpture or not. It's I just want to be part of feeding into this where here's just another creation that people can look at. Because that was awesome walking down the street and just being like, just seeing different styles and different approaches and different types of metal. I just want to be a part of it because the energy was so cool. Totally, for sure. And that's one of my favorite parts of it is it's competition, but man, everybody there is like lifting each other up. Everybody's hoping for everyone else to succeed, whether it's by getting your piece sold or just having people enjoy it, yeah, irrespective it was, it was, of the awards. I think everybody was just so happy to see people appreciating everyone's stuff. It was great. And there was a lot of people there. I had no idea what to expect coming into the event because I'd talked to some people about it, but I was like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, there was a ton like, of people know, there. It, just, it was like the whole community, yeah. like people that would just genuinely like bringing their kids, people. bringing their mom, bringing everybody to come see some metal. Yeah, that was truly awesome. <laughs> a lot of people had no idea what they were walking into. Like, why is there a giant guitar at the end yeah. of the street? <laughs> and that was like a good entry into the whole festival. Did you get to pick out that spot or were you assigned that spot? No, I was assigned that spot. Yeah, I was very grateful to get it. It was pretty cool. Yeah. They're yeah, walking in and be like, row. that's the winner right there. Don't need to see it. I'm turning around. I'm done. I don't need to see anything else. Like my favorite thing was I saw that hand, like I saw the hand on the guitar. I didn't realize I could put my hand in the hand. So when yeah. I took a picture in front of yours, I was like, just like pretending like I was holding it. 
And then afterwards, I saw everybody putting their hand in there. I was like, wow, I really missed it on that one. So what's really funny is you and 90% of the people that walk up to it had the same reaction, which was just, hey, I'll stand next to this thing. And so I I was standing there almost the whole whole festival, walking up and showing, especially if somebody's getting ready to take a picture of it. I'd say, hey, stick your hand in there. Really? Can I do that? I'm like, yeah. Yeah. That's a funny thing to walk up and tell people. Yeah, stick your hand in that little hole. That's a trap. That's a trap. You have to bid on it. Yeah. The whole thing is made up of sharp edges. So inside that hand, I wrote sharp edges inside. So a handful of people Uh, would pull their hand out and look at it like, ah, I scratched it. (laughs) There's the end of a ribbon in there or something. Just collecting fingers in there, man. Just getting some <laughs> DNA samples for his next engineering build. This this has been an awesome conversation. I definitely would love to chat. Like, I, I want to learn more about that robotics camp that you're talking about in like yeah. engineering camp. Because I think some stuff. that'd be cool to check out. I got a little nephew and I know he would, he's in first grade now. So I know he would eat it up. So. Yep. Yep. I appreciate your time, man. And are you planning on making more like public sculptures like available to people? Or is this still going to just be a hobby? Yeah, no, it's still a hobby. Like I, I think uh, a lot of people you walk that line of do you take a hobby and make it a business? I don't particularly want to make it a business. Yeah, I'm really out of the ball. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I just want to do stuff on my own time. I don't want to have another boss. I already have a bunch of those. So yeah. But anyways, yeah, I'm making stuff and I'm working on a seven foot shark right now. And, and yeah, I, I actually want to do another guitar. It, it was so well received. I, and after the fact, I started to learn, oh my gosh, guitar nerds have so much variety yeah. to go through. I, I do want to do a Gibson Les Paul or an SG or a Flying V or oh, something. Yeah. I just got to find the right person who wants it. And, the flying uh, V, man. The flying V would be cool. Super cool. <laughs> I feel great. like the Les Paul is, is going to be way more. There's way more Les Paul sculptures out there than there are Flying Vs, I would say. Well, that, and with the Flying V, you probably attract True. someone like me who knows absolutely nothing about guitars. And I'd be like, ooh, there's that one that they call the Flying V. And you could probably put <laughs> yeah. some wings on it. Ooh, we're already brainstorming. Awesome. Where could people find your work, though? So if they wanted to check out more of your sculptures or follow along with your journey, where can people follow along? You can. I'm not a big social media guy, so you don't have to follow me. You can do your own thing. <laughs> but it, I, there's a, I, I do have a little Instagram. It's Quinn Metal Art with a couple of underscores in between there. But again, not big on social media. That's fine. That's fine. I'm just saying if curiosity is very big. I, I got gotcha. People are like, well, I, I want to go see more. Understood. So. I got you. But I'll definitely link it in the show notes and stuff too for you. Okay, cool. You know what? I had one last thought for you guys because I, when I, I've listened to you interview others at the end, you go, hey, what kind of uh, advice would you have? And you already caught me with that on the engineering part. But on the art yeah. side, I was thinking, yeah. what what advice would I give? Because we haven't done a lot of welding talk really in this whole thing. But I know. <laughs> if you're a welder and you're really good at what you do, why not give yourself a challenge to, for Christmas, instead of giving people gifts, make them something. So if you can bend and fabricate and cut and weld anything, people do really like getting handmade, hand-welded little figurines or whatever. But I don't know. I think that would be a pretty good challenge for someone to do to that's, step that's outside of their comfort advice. zone, see if they like it. That's kind of how I, I got into it. I that challenge. <laughs> All my friends and family, you could go into my sister's house and she's got a bunch of my beginner art projects and all that kind of stuff. And they can't get enough of it every year. They're almost like, wait, why did you, why did you get me a gift card this year? What the heck? 
<laughs> They're waiting for another art project. Yep. Love that. I'm going to take the challenge. I got to Like, I still have yet to make, I tried making a sculpture of a Christmas tree last year out of rebar, and then it just turned into a very good boat anchor. So <laughs> this year I'm going to, I'm going to really try to do that because I would love to, I just want to get into the, cre- I'm creative when it comes to music, but like when it comes to visualizing things, that's like my big downfall. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to reverse engineer it. Cool. Push yourself. Yeah. Find something that looks cool and make it out of steel. Awesome. I appreciate your time. And I really am like, I was blown away. This is not fake. Like I was obsessed with this and (laughs) I'm just really excited because I didn't talk to you the whole time in the festival until everybody was packing up. And I was like, man, like I need to talk to whoever made this thing because (laughs) they got to be a guitar nerd. So yeah. Totally. Yeah. I'm glad you found me and I'm glad we got the chat and uh, I'm really glad you're coming next year and you can hit me up for any kind of questions whatsoever. I'd be uh, super happy to help you out however I can. I appreciate it, man. And I, I was really blown away. You should be really proud of what you did. And I can't wait to see what you come up with next year. I'm intimidated now. <laughs> I'm really worried. I had a one hit wonder. I don't know if I got another good idea in me, but we'll find out. <laughs> we'll all find out. We'll all be like, this is what I got this year. Awesome. I'm excited. I hope we cross paths well, next you- uh, myself there, Rich. Right on. Looking forward to meeting you, Austin. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the Weld.com podcast. And thank you, Rich, for such a great conversation. I will definitely be hitting you up for some advice for next year. I also want to give a big shout out to our sponsors, Donaldson and Lincoln Electric, for making this show possible and showing us all the different pathways available in the industry. If you have a topic you would like to cover or would like to be a guest on the show, shoot me an email to bowweld.com. Or hit me up on the Weld app, at It. Speaking of the app, if you are looking to get into sculptures, we have a ton of great projects to start with over in our e-learning section. Download the app today and see everything it can do to help take your career to that next level. Until next week, we'll see you out there. <laughs>